Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and open to 2 Kings chapter 6 and hold it right there because we're going to look at part of chapter 6 and part of chapter 7. So hang on. You ready? Y'all awake? I got good morning. We got good morning out of you. Can you say, I'm awake? Okay, thank you. I, I can see some of you. That's These four right up here are going to really get unloaded on today. So... Hey, uh, it is good to be back with you today. We're going to be looking uh, over the next couple of weeks at a movement uh, in Scripture. And uh, before we do that, I just want us uh, as uh, believers in the West to remember our brothers and sisters that are um, under the oppression of the, uh, of the war that's going on in Ukraine. Uh, I have a, a friend and his family, Papa Nikolai is a pastor in the Chernobyl area of Ukraine. Uh, he is uh, known as the father of the church planting movement in that nation. Uh, he has planted more uh, churches and helped send out, trained up and helped send out more uh, pastors uh, than any other uh, leader in that uh, country, especially uh, working with uh, Baptist churches as part of the been president of the uh, Ukraine Baptist Convention and and uh, serves. And when you're the president of the Baptist Convention in, in one of those countries, uh, it just means more work. It doesn't mean anything else. And so he's a tireless leader. Uh, his daughter uh, uh, has uh, come out of the country uh, with uh, uh, her sisters, and they uh, left their families behind. This story goes on and on. And can be repeated many times as we are hearing stories of pastors' wives who uh, have said that they will not go. And uh, Papa Nikolai's uh, wife uh, said the same thing. Said, We've, we have served the Lord together. If the Lord chooses for us to perish, we will perish together in the service of the Lord. Wow, that is quite a testimony. So I hope that you'll pray for our missionaries there and for our, our leaders and our, and our believers that are there because in the midst of war, the gospel is going forward. And uh, when life and death is front, front and center in your life, you begin to think about spiritual things and so the ground is ripe for the gospel. So let's go uh, to the Lord. Father, our prayers will not nearly be as fervent as they ought to be. Our desperation, Father, does not match that of those who are under the oppression of the military might of Russia this morning. Whether they can gather in your name in large groups or small groups or one-on-one, -on -one, Father, it, it is up to you and you alone. Lord, they have a great desire. Believers who are committed to the gospel have a great desire to make you known even in the midst of their, of their suffering. I pray, Lord, that you will strengthen all of those believers in that country who are both serving their country and serving you as their Lord. I pray that you will open their hearts and their minds and their mouths that they might proclaim the good news of Jesus every opportunity that they have. And Lord, we pray that you would cause this, this evil to cease. 
And Lord, that somehow you would put in the mind of Putin a change of heart. God, that you would turn him from the evil that he is inflicting upon these people. And Lord, that you would return him and his armies uh, to Russia. And Lord, that you would give peace to the land of Ukraine. Lord, I pray that you be with the wisdom, with the leaders of the world, that, Lord, you would give great insight, understanding, and wisdom so that, Lord, that nothing more atrocious than what has happened continue to happen in the world. And I pray that you would just give uh, your strength to our leaders and the leaders of the European countries that they might be wise in decisions and actions that they take. Lord, we love you and we come to you this day as the people of God because you have encouraged us to do so. And so, Lord, uh, with our hearts uh, and minds fixed upon those who are suffering today, we pray to the God who can relieve their suffering. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This morning we're going to look at a very difficult passage It's difficult because, in my estimation, it's going to have within it the most atrocious look at the depravity of man. It has the the most difficult story by which we have to read in God's Word to show the wickedness of the heart of men. And so before we get to that, I want us to remember that the Old Testament is a series of events and stories that point us to the coming of Jesus into our world. To the salvation that in just a few short weeks we're going to celebrate on that Easter Sunday morning when we come together to praise His name and to worship Him in wisdom and in truth uh, because He has risen from the dead. And He sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. The Old Testament, while they did not understand how the Messiah would come and what the Messiah would do, we know that they knew that the Messiah would come and that He would deliver them and that they would have presence of God restored in their life. And so there's kind of a movement. John, John uh, Scoggins in, in Texas say, says it's like this. He says there's God's design, and then there's the brokenness of man, and then there's the gospel that brings us back to God's design. So it's kind of a three-act play that is carried out in the Old Testament in different stories and different events to help us understand what God is going to do in the person of Jesus, who is our Messiah. And we know, what that, we know what that is. We know God's design was when he placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and they had fellowship with God. God's presence was among them, that they walked in the cool of the evening. They talked face to face with God. They, they, they experienced him in his full glory. That was God's design for all mankind, but something happened, and then they decided that they wanted something else, and they sinned, and that brought us into brokenness. 
And that brokenness is displayed in our lives and the lives of all humanity in a variety of ways. The brokenness, though it takes many different paths and it, and it sends people out in many different directions, all of it is hopelessness. All of it is striving, striving hard to find a way back to the design for which God created us. A way that we would have peace that passes understanding, which is the presence of God in our life. And so they try religion, and they try doing better, and they try to stop doing things. But reality is none of that leads back to God's design because we have sin in our life. And we can't overcome sin on our own. And so our lives are broken, and that brokenness is demonstrated throughout the whole world. But then... From that brokenness, God looked upon man and saw man in, in that brokenness and he had compassion. God always wanted man to work and live within his designed plan. And when man sinned, it became evident that, that Jesus was going to have to come to the earth, that he was going to have to die on the cross, he was going to have to raise from the dead to win victory over sin and death. And that is the gospel. The gospel as we know it is revealed through the New Testament. But there is that deliverance from our brokenness and from our sin that comes when we believe and we repent. And then when we believe and repent and we receive the good news, the gospel, into our life, we are then brought back into God's design for our life. While we still live in a broken world that is chaotic in many different ways... We have the presence of God dwelling within us called His Spirit. And that seems to be the movement of God throughout all of the Old Testament. Revealing His design to have fellowship with man. Man's rebellious heart leading him into brokenness. God's deliverance bringing him back to a place where if he will believe and repent, he would have God's presence restored to his life. In this passage today, we're going to see that there is a story. It's a, it's a narrative. And so it, it doesn't preach three points in a poem. It, it preaches more along the line of uh, this is how the movement of this story goes. The first thing that we see here in chapter 6, verse 24, we find that there is a brokenness that has taken place. The scripture says, sometime later... King Ben-Hadad of Aram brought all his military units together and marched up to besiege Samaria. So there was a great famine in Samaria, and they continued the siege until a donkey's head sold for 80 silver shekels and a cup of dove's dung for Five silver, silver shekels. It's easy to, easier to read in my head than to say with my tongue. As the king of Israel was passing by the wall, a woman cried out to him, My lord, the king, help. He answered, If the lord doesn't help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor or the wine press? Then the king asked her, What's the matter? She said, this woman said to me, give, your, give up your son and we will eat him today. And then we will eat my son tomorrow. 
So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her, the next day, give up your son and we will eat him. But she, was, she has hidden her son. When the king heard the woman's word, he tore his clothes. Then he was passing by on the wall. The people saw that there was sackcloth under his clothes next to his skin. And he announced, may God punish me and do so severely if the head of Elisha, son of Saphat, remains on the shoulders uh, uh, today. So here's, here's what's taking place. Aram had, had come against Israel, had come against them while they were in Samaria, and had besieged them because Elisha was spoiling the plans of the king of Aram. There, there was made known to the king that he was not being sold out by his, his adversaries within his own ranks, but that actually there was a prophet in the land of Samaria named Elisha. And he was telling all of the, of the king of Aram's enemies what was going on even in the secrecy of his own bedroom. And so the king said, we're going to put Elisha to death. And so in order to put Elisha to death, he besieged the city in Samaria where the king was and the Israelites. And when he besieged that city, he wanted to kill Elisha. And so Elisha being in the city, they, they, they surrounded the city and they, and they put up barriers and blockades so that there was no way that anybody could get in or out and that there was no way for them to get the food that they needed to survive. And they thought that at some point that the king would, of Israel would hand over the prophet of God to them and then they would have their, their secrets hidden once again, and that God would not reveal their hard heart, their broken heart, to the enemies which they had. And so, here they are. They have now surrounded the, the community. And it's been a number, a number of months. And so, they are starting to, to perish because of the hunger that they have. So much so that, that the, the two things that they start with is that... The, the head of a donkey. Now, I don't know what the best part of a donkey would be if you were going to eat it. I got a feeling that that's not really a good part of a donkey, you know. But if you're going to eat a donkey, I imagine you don't start with the head. I, I, you know, I, it's, it's not the choicest cut of meat. And so here they, they're, they're, they're scraping the heads of the donkeys, trying to get any kind of nutrition off of it. And that donkey's head would sell for about a year's wages. And they were willing to just, just for, for even the temporary amount of, of, of pleasure and comfort that would come from that, they were willing to give up a year's salary just to have a few days of, of meat inside their belly. And then not only that, but for a day's wage, they were gathering up the droppings of doves and eating the droppings of the doves. And so what was happening here is in their, in their depravity, in their brokenness, they, they're, they're sitting there feeding on the filth of the world. And that, that's, that's what's taking place at this time. They, they have this insatiable hunger that they cannot satisfy. And they're working really hard and, and they're striving really hard and they're spending all their energy and all their money and everything that they have just trying to satisfy this hunger of their flesh. 
But while they are taking in the filth physically, I want us to be reminded that, that all of broken humanity seem to do this in some way or another. When we get to that place of brokenness and where, we, where the hunger that is inside of us for our flesh comes so great, we begin to feed on the filth of the world. We begin to take things into our lives that are filthy. We begin to take things into our lives. We begin to act out in ways that are the, the ways of the world, which are filth to the ways of God. And so while they're taking this stuff in, as they're eating this stuff, they're taking in more disease. So the more they take in, the more hunger they have. It may satisfy temporarily, but now they've added this disease upon their hunger, and so now their insides is craving to be satisfied even more ravenously than it was in the beginning. That it did not satisfy and it did not prolong. It just caused disease to grow inside of them, which caused the intensity of their hunger pains to be heightened. That's the way sin is in our life. When we begin to take sin into our life, it promises us that it will fulfill us, that it will satisfy us, that it will meet the need that, that we have inside us. But the more we take in the sin of the world, we take that disease into our life. And what happens to us? The more of the filth of the world that we take in, it becomes that disease begins to grow in us. And what, what might have satisfied us temporarily, now we have even a greater dissatisfaction inside of us and we even go deeper and deeper into the transgressions of the world and we try to fill our life with those things but what started out as a little now gets greater in our life because our hunger becomes stronger and the disease in our in our flesh becomes greater and we are never satisfied and we go deeper and deeper and deeper into our brokenness and that's what was happening with them Promised satisfaction only created a more ravenous hunger for the, for the disease-ridden fulfillment that they sought. And then we come to this two stories of these mothers. And without getting too much into it because there's children here, I, I just want us to say this. What really stands out to me is not the grotesque behavior of the first mother. What really stands out is that she had no remorse for what she did. Her anger welled up within her, not her guilt. Not her shame. She was angry because others wouldn't join her in what she had done. It, it, it behooves me to think of a world in which mothers would not love their children more than themselves. My mom died at the age of 40, but I will tell you that up until that day that she died, she would have died for my sister or my brother or I at any moment if, that was, if there was something coming against us. She would have stood between us and whatever was coming. So it's, it's hard for me to fathom that there would be a mother who would treat a child 
so grotesquely, who would satisfy their desires over the desires and needs of their child. I pastored in upstate South Carolina. I had heard a story when I was pastoring in Weatherford about a mother who had put her two children in the back seat of the car and put a brick on the gas pedal and ran it out the boat ramp into Lake. I didn't know the lake. I didn't know the town. I'm preaching this, this message about mother's love. It was Mother's Day, and I said, who could fathom that a mother would, would so desire the love of a lover and not their husband or their child, and they would send their child to their death so that they could have what they wanted and, and, and not even regard that. After the service, somebody came up and said, uh, you know the rest of that story? I said, what more do I want to know? They said, how about the fact that it happened right outside of town here? I said, ooh, I might not have said that if I'd have known it happened right outside of town there. They said, how about the fact that she listens to us on the, out of the women's prison and that three of our ladies go out there every Monday and Thursday to teach a Bible study that she comes to? I said, well, I think they need to be prepared for what's going to come at the next Bible study, right? But here's the deal. She was still unrepentant. What, what world do we live in that mothers and fathers are more in love with their flesh than they are their own offspring? Yet, we know right now that in America, thousands and thousands of babies have been put to death because of the lust of a mom and a dad. So we're not much different. But the king is now distraught. He, he's thinking, how did, how did my nation get to this kind of wickedness? How did they get to this kind of torment? And so he said, okay, here's the deal. This has got to stop. And the only way I can stop it is I've got to kill that prophet so that they will no longer besiege my country. Now, long before this, Israel had done what they had done many times from the Exodus. They had that ebb and flow where God delivered them, they trusted God, they walked with God, they left the presence of God, they followed into the ways of the world, and then God redeemed them and brought them back up. They repented, and they, and they were walking right, and then, and then they dropped back down. Well... This was one of the low points. They had rejected God. They were living according to the world. And that yet God had a prophet calling them back into himself. And instead of seeking God and repenting, they decided to kill the preacher. Now, don't get no ideas. But I'm going to tell you, that happens all the time in churches where all of a sudden a pastor will call a church to accountability before the, before the throne of God. And the church doesn't want to make the decisions that, that bring them back into the presence of God. And so they run off the preacher. Elisha says it best. He says, hear the word 
of the Lord. Verse 1, chapter 7. And I'm going to tell you, when we're in our brokenness and we're looking for a way out, it's imperative that we hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. About this time tomorrow at the gate of Samaria, six quarts of fine meal will sell for a shekel, and twelve quarts of barley will sell for a shekel. Then the captain of the king's right-hand man responded to the, Lord, to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord were to open the windows of heaven, could this really happen? Elisha announced, You will in fact see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat any of it. So here's a guy that says, Okay, now listen. I hear what you're saying, but hear me. I don't believe that God can do this. How is it that we would have that much to sell at the gate when we don't have enough seed right now to meet that need? We don't have the seed to put in the ground that would produce that kind of harvest. But let's suppose we had the seed and we put it in the ground. We're in a drought. We don't have enough water to make that seed grow. But let's suppose we had the water that went on the seed that we don't have, and the water we don't have goes on the seed that we don't have, and, it were to, and we were to plant it, overnight that seed would not grow and produce a head. But if it did, if we put the seed that we don't have and the water that we don't have on it, and it grew overnight into a head, we wouldn't have time to harvest it and to mill it, and to put it out at the city gate. If God were to open the windows of heaven, this could not be. Elisha says, hear the word of the Lord. Listen, deliverance always comes at the hand of God, and God always delivers in ways that are impossible for man to deliver himself. He says, you will see it, but you will not partake of it, and you will perish without it. Oh, listen to me. In a generation that has rejected Jesus, the word of the Lord is here. And many who hear the word choose not to believe the word. And they will perish in their unbelief. And that's heartbreaking. But some will. So now look at verse 3. Four men with skin diseases were at the entrance of the gate. They said to each other, Now, let me just say this. These guys are not Baptists. I need to put a disclaimer out here before I say this out loud, okay? Four men with skin disease, before they became Baptists, asked this question. Why just sit here until we die? Now, no Baptist would ever ask that question. Most Baptists would rather sit where they're at and do the same things that they've always done even though they're diminishing in number, even though they are nowhere near where they were at their, at their uh, 
peak in the, in the work of the Lord, they would rather stay where they are and change nothing. Amen, oh me, move on. And change nothing rather than to change anything. They would rather die than change anything. You say, oh, that's not true. Let me take you to Oklahoma City. Just one, just one hour away. And let me take you to... I can, think, I can think of four right now churches that are in the inner city of Oklahoma City whose neighborhoods changed around them, but they were unwilling to change. And today they have less than 10 people trying to keep open a building that probably costs more than all of their ties together would even uh, just to insure it and to keep the utilities on. They have closed off whole sections of their building. They're meeting in a little room, not even using their sanctuaries any longer because they don't have enough people to keep all that space heated and cooled and, and electricity flowing in it. And so now they're there. But they are not going to change a thing. These guys weren't Baptists. They knew that wasn't, a, that wasn't a plan that was going to be successful. Why do we sit here until we die? If we say, let us go into the city. Well, listen, there's this wisdom here. If we say, let us go into the city, we will die there because the famine is in the city. But if we sit here, we will also die. So now come on. Let's go to the Aramean's camp. Now listen, underline this. If you don't underline your Bible, reach over and underline in the person next to you. This is good, this is good stuff. And, and listen, you can't know this stuff unless you read God's Word. Listen to what they say. If they let us live, we will live. If they kill us, we will die. Come on now, that, that's, that's, that's gospel right there. If they kill us, we'll die. If they let us live, we'll live. And so, here these guys are. Now, I want you to think about who these guys are. These are four diseased men outside of the city. The city is being besieged. Who's outside the city? The enemy of those inside the city. So, they're, they're on the outside because their loved ones, their family members, their friends, their community has said, you can no longer be anywhere around us. You get outside the city. They hadn't touched anybody. Nobody had hugged them. Nobody had shook their hand. Nobody had had any contact with them because as far as their family was concerned, they were as good as dead. And they hardly ever thought about them because they were diseased. And they didn't want that disease to come upon them. And so they kicked them out. So these diseased men, got up at the twilight to go to the Aramean camp. Verse 5. When they came... Okay, let's back up just a second. Yeah, verse 5. So the diseased men got up at twilight to go to the Aramean camp. When they came to the camp's edge, they discovered that there was not a single man there. For the Lord had caused the Aramean camp to hear the sound of the chariots, horses, and the great army. The Arameans had said to each other, the king of Israel must have hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to attack us. So they got up and fled at the twilight, abandoning their tents, their horses, their donkeys. The camp was intact, and they had fled for their lives. When, they, when these men came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent. Now here, listen, this is where they convert to Baptist. Okay, follow me, you'll, you'll get it. 
When they came into the camp, they went into the tent to eat and drink. Then they picked up all the silver and gold and the clothing and went off and hid it. Sounds really Baptist to me. They came back and entered another tent, picked things up, and hid them. Then they said to each other, wait, we're not doing right. So here's what happened. These four men were desperate. They were desperate for God to intervene in their life. And so they went to the enemy's camp. And when they decided to go, God moved before them. Listen to me. God is ready to move before anyone who is willing to go in His name. And when God goes before us, the way of God is opened up to us and the things of God are revealed unto us. God's not going to give us His wisdom. He's not going to give us His strength. He's not going to give us His power if we're just going to sit in our pews and prosper. No, we're to advance the gospel. We're to take the land. We're to move forward with our faith. And when we choose to do that, God makes the way clear before us. And He does the work that we can't do. These men saw that. But here they are, so fresh to be converted to Baptists that they they still have some of their old ways in them. And they ask this question, We're not doing right. We're not doing right. They said, Today is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning light, we will be punished. Let us go tell the king's household. Now I want you to stay with me just just for a few minutes that we have. Listen to me real quick. These four men... Have their needs met. They have it so abundantly met that they can't use all that God has provided for them. And then they realize God did not give us all of this just for the four of us. God has delivered the city. Let's go back and tell the city what God has done on their behalf. Why would they do that? These are the same people who have said, you're as good as dead to us. We don't love you. We don't care for you. We don't want to touch you. We don't even want to see you. And while they're outcasts to the community in which they should belong, they still had compassion for those who had mistreated them. Wait a second. That's the New Testament church. The world isn't saying today, Oh, I hope First Baptist Church Enid is really packed out today. I hope that the power of God falls upon that church today. I hope that the people of faith really walk strong in their faith today. I hope that they really stand up for the things of God in our community. I hope that they are there to, to make sure that we do right and not evil in the sight of God. No, no. The vast majority of your community is saying, we couldn't care less what you do in that church. Don't bring that into my world. I want to hear about your religion. I don't want your religion shaping my laws or what I can and can't do. 
I don't want your morals telling me what I can and can't do. As far as we're concerned, you're not even really part of us. We don't want to see you. We don't want... And yet, what we have received from God is not for ourselves only, but it is for those who have, who have mistreated and have hated us. I think God said, I think Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. But he still died for all. And so we must serve all. And you know what happened? The city wasn't sure, but they came out and they saw the provisions of God. The next day, they were doing just what the word of the Lord had said would happen. The deliverance had come. The prices had fallen. The meal was there. The food was there. The king's right-hand man sees all of this coming into the city. And that day, before he could partake in any of it, the crowds trampled him and he died. He perished. He perished. He perished for one reason. He did not believe the word of the Lord. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto me. No man comes unto the Father except through me. That is the word of the Lord. And those who refuse that word will perish. Those who don't believe the way of deliverance, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who don't believe and don't repent, they will continue in their brokenness throughout all eternity. But for those who do, those who once were part of God's design, who fell into brokenness, but have received the good news of Jesus Christ, repented and believed upon Him, they have been brought back into fellowship with God. This morning, there are several things that should happen. Those who have never called upon Jesus to repent and believe. And those of us who have repented and believed, now in the presence of God, we ought to move out in faith, believing that if we go in the name of Jesus, we can transform our community, our state, our nation, and our world. If we will go. These men said, we're not doing right. If we remain silent, the calamity will come upon us. I want you to know, no, no legal institution, no government office, no law can turn our nation to God. Only the church can do that. But we have to go in his name. To individuals... Not to lawmakers, but to individuals with the good news of Jesus Christ. And as every soul is transformed, communities change. Let's stand to our feet. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will use your word today in our lives. Knowing that you have designed us to have intimacy and fellowship with you. But because of our sin, we've walked into brokenness. And Lord, our lives have suffered and those around us have suffered. 
But because Jesus came to deliver the gospel, the good news that, that he could save, we have repented and we have believed. And you have given us the fellowship of your spirit through your Holy Spirit. And we've been brought back into your design for our life. Help those of us who have made that journey. Help us to help others who are still in their brokenness find the way to the good news. Help us not to remain silent. And for those who have never repented and believed, God, today, may they call out to you in the name of Jesus and believe upon you as the Savior of the world, the Savior of their soul. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As God's Spirit has spoken, you come today.